This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Emily Allen, your host for this episode. Today, I'm talking with Christopher Reale, author of Music and Mystique in Muscle Shoals, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2022. A little bit more about the book. The forceful music that rolled out of Muscle Shoals in the 1960s and 1970s shaped hits by everyone from Wilson Pickett and Aretha Franklin to the Rolling Stones and Paul Simon. So Christopher M. Reale's in-depth look at the fabled musical hotbed examines the events and factors that gave the Muscle Shoals sound such a potent cultural power. Many artists trekked to fame studios and Muscle Soul Shound in search of the sound of authentic Southern Black music and at times expressed shock at the mostly white studio musicians waiting to play it for them. Others hoped to draw on the hit-making production process that defined the scene. Rally also chronicles the overlooked history of Muscle Shoals' impact on country music and describes the recent region's recent transformation into a tourism destination. So multifaceted and formed music and mystique in Muscle Shoals reveals the people, places, and events behind one of the most legendary recording scenes in American history. And a little bit more about our speaker today, Christopher Reale is an assistant professor of music at Ramapo College of New Jersey. So thank you, Chris, for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Awesome. So before we discuss the book, can you tell us a little bit more about you? Sure. Um, uh, I've been a musician for my entire life, and um, I've had a multi- multiple career before I went into academia. Um, I was, I said, I'm a musician. I used to work for David Gray and Chris Whitley um, as a guitar technician and tour manager uh, for Chris. And then I, I worked for David Gray during his ascension uh, with the White Ladder, which is now celebrating its, well, its 22nd year of history. But um, and then I, I, I taught middle school band, and then I eventually um, went to. While teaching musical band, um, I was like, this is great. I love teaching music, but I'd like to have maybe deep in-depth conversations. Um, and so I was, uh, I was, um, some of my people, some, some faculty members while I was pursuing my master's degree in education, um, they were encouraged me to seek, to, to go off to get a PhD. And so I eventually did. And I went to UNC Chapel Hill and, um, and lived in the South for a while and then eventually got a job, got lucky enough to get a tenure track job at a college in New Jersey, which is why where I am now. And I teach both music history and music industry classes. Awesome. And within that journey, how did you actually start this project about Muscle Shoals? Um, you know, the, to be, to be honest, it, it started when I was a kid. Um, you know, I, the band, I, I've been playing in bands my whole life and we always played music. 
that had been that was recorded in Muscle Shoals, although I didn't know that at the time. Uh, and like many like many people, I probably first heard of Muscle Shoals through Leonard Skinner's song "Sweet Home Alabama." Um, where they say Muscle Shoals has got the swampers, but like pretty much everybody in the country, I had no idea what that meant. And it's funny, even, you know, David Hood, uh, who's the bass player for the Swampers, or known as the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, he once told me, he's like, yeah, when we got when that song came out, like, oh, you guys gonna be famous? And he, David said, no one knows what that means. That it's, it was an inside joke. So anyway, so I, I've been playing the music for a long time, and then when I finally when I got to Chapel Hill, my first semester there, I was in a seminar. Um, uh, and, and we were asked to do a research project, um, based on our archival project based at the Southern Folklife Collection, which is this massive uh, archive at UNC that they all things Southern from like, you know, um, cooking food, uh, uh um, neat, I mean, everything. And so they have a, they had a small collection from Jerry Wexler, um, who was the legendary producer. And in it, there was a, a uh, Wexler had a, a type, uh, type manuscript, article that was published in billboard in 1969 and so that became the basis of this paper and then i realized hey there's not much on muscle shoals out there other than a, like a, basically a chapter in a book or two and then it and it was, and I, was, I was stupefied considering how much music had been recorded there and that literally opened the door um to the entire project and and just by just um, by serendipity one of my uh classmates had been had befriended um uh um, somebody else and somebody who lived in Chapel Hill, somebody who lived in Durham and his dad, Will McFarlane happened to, to be, he was a member of the muscle sort of rhythm section in the nineties. And so I, so Will was my first interview. Um, he used to live in Durham and then Will helped me get, get in touch with Jimmy Johnson and, and, and all these other doors open through that. So it was, so some of it was by, some of it was just dumb luck and some of it was, was because I had, I had to write this paper. So. Awesome. And so you kind of found this, wealth of information that fed into the book. And like you said, a lot of people probably recognize this from the Skinner song, but also that documentary that came out, right? Like a few years ago. So where do you see your book fitting within this? Like, what do you think people who have seen the documentary uh, might learn from your book that they don't know otherwise? Um, so, and, you know, in the small world department of when I, my first trip down to the Shoals, which was the summer of 2011, they were making the movie at that time, uh, and I didn't—I actually did not meet those guys, but a bunch of my contacts were like, "Oh, hey, they're making a movie," you know, blah blah blah. Um, and so then, yeah, the, the movie comes out in 2014, I guess it was. And um, in many ways, the movie is the antagonist of the book because there's a lot of things in the movie that's just wrong, and. Um, Again, it's it's a massive story, and there's no way to tell it, uh, and there's no way to tell that much history in the two-hour movie. And I I, I totally understand that, um, but there are some things that are just actually that are factually inaccurate. So um, the, the one thing uh, I talk about a little bit in the book is that Rick Hall, they, they, it portrays Rick Hall as the, this great man theory that it was all him. And of, of course, you know, to make a compelling to make a compelling documentary, you need to have a strong lead character. And so Rick Hall was certainly that person. And I funny, I never talked to Rick Hall ever. Like they would never let me near him, which is kind of funny. Um, so so where in actuality, there was a lot of people who were um, very involved in the story. And I remember I, I saw a screening of the movie uh, somewhere when I lived in North Carolina, and Dan Penn was there. And Dan Penn said, oh, I like the movie, but I'm really upset that there's a bunch of people that they left out, so, such as James Joyner. So James Joyner, who I talk about in the book, he's basically the, he's the, he's the guy that said, hey, we should have a music industry here. And he started this whole thing, um, and he's left out of the, he's left out of the movie. Um, and so 
I think one of the things that I try to do in, in the book is that there are, if, if this is the only book that's ever written on the scene, which I doubt it will be, I want to get as many names in there as possible because it is such a diverse network of people. Um, yeah, of course, the Rick Halls and the Swampers um, are, you know, are significant to the story, but they're only a portion of the story. And so, you know, part of part of the thing, the, probably the most significant thing that if you watch the movie and then read the book, the book doesn't even, so the movie doesn't even talk about the country music scene at all. It's just completely left out, like, you know, because so many people are enamored with the, with the soul music section. Again, and it's all part of the Muscle Shoals Mystique. The movie actually, the movie feeds right into the Muscle Shoals Mystique, the, my idea of, of the Muscle Shoals Mystique, which I was like, oh, that's great. It even it helped, it just reinforces my my my, the, my theory. So thank you, Stephen, Stephen Badger and whoever made the book and Greg Calmier for making the movie, so... Yeah. And speaking of that theory, um, we can kind of unpack that a little bit further, right? Like you kind of complicate a lot of those things that you were just talking about, like the way these Northern executives like package the South and all this, all those different people that you said were involved. So can you talk a little bit about how this mystique, you know, builds all this hype up right around, you know, Muscle Shoals and music? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the music industry is a business and every business relies on your last hit, especially the music industry. So people like Wexler and others, um, and it obviously goes way back into even into the Tin Pan Alley era, as you know, as my research and, and people have other done, done other research around the, that Tin Pan Alley era. This has been a long standing thing. Like things are better in the South. I mean, this, this again, there's been this, again, I said long standing long-standing love affair with with the south as this rural agrarian paradise i mean and we'll, we'll, we'll put chattel slavery over here but we'll, we'll leave it out for a second people they, they forget about that and so wexler um was able to capitalize on that um but part of that is his it was his own upbringing he comes he's from the north and he he was he was enamored with music by black musicians you know louis armstrong you know a, a lot of early ragtime and jazz players um, and then he becomes, an, he gets into this position of power and he's able to actually influence the direction of popular music. And he, you know, he goes down, first goes down to the South and he realizes that these incredibly talented musicians who aren't union members, who are willing to work for less money. And he takes advantage of them. Again, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that there was a love affair. They, they loved each other. Like they, I mean, there's absolutely, they, there was a deep respect on both sides Wexler, Wexler had respect for the musicians. The musicians had respect for Wexler and everything he did. And there was there were definitely a kinship. And I think you know Wexler even says that, and I quote that in the book. Um, but at the end of the day, he also, you know, he also saved Atlantic Records thousands of dollars, you know, uh, you know, in 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 fees, and which increased their profits. And so then that story gets told in the press. It gets told in Billboard. It get you know, and that that filters its way into article to things like in Rolling Stone or or Melody Maker in England, and you know, and other and other other in, in Cream and other and, and magazines like the South is this mystical place where people just sort of they just sit around, and they, they got you know hay bells in their you know they pieces of hay in their teeth, and they pick a tarp and whatever, and they can just pick make these songs up. And that happens everywhere. But again, a lot of it, a lot of it just comes from this this misconception of the South as this agrarian paradise and, and, and then, and then quote unquote natural abilities of these musicians to, to, to make music. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting how, 
one part of this mystique as you get at is this quote unquote muscle shoal sound that kind of plays into that, right? You kind of get it into the sort of gritty quality and all these different aspects. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, how is this branded? How is this tying into placemaking um, some of the stereotypes that you were talking about just a second ago? Yeah. So, it, you know, the, the book started off as a dissertation, as many of these things do. And, um, you know, when I, when I started off, you know, the dissertation had, I, I, I was, I'm into music analysis and music theory. And so I actually went heavy into looking at the songs and like trying to figure out like, is there a muscle soul sound? And that, that was a question I asked all the musicians, you know, and I was like, well, what is it? You know, and, you know, and, and it, it kind of blinded me when I did some of the, some of the research. And, and then as the years ticked off after the, I graduated from UNC, I began to think more about like, there is no such thing as a muscle soul sound. There's no such thing as a Nashville sound. And it, it becomes, this, it's a process. And again, it, it is, it, uh, the, and I, I mentioned in the book that it's the, the process for the for the, the Memphis sound, the, the Nashville sound, and the Muscle Soul sound are all really similar. It's basically basically these these really talented, quote unquote, untrained musicians, which which was code for they couldn't read music, um, and and they they just sort of sat down, heard stuff in their head, and just able to play it, and. And, but there are differences. So, you know, Motown had that, the, the, the four on the floor drum beat and auxiliary percussion, tambourine particularly, um, and, and things that were recorded stacks and in Muscle Shoals, they were a little, they were a little more raw. You know, you listen to some Otis Redding recordings, there are things out of tune. You listen to some of the Shoals recordings, there are things out of tune. Like this, this would not, you know, it would have never happened to Motown. Like, sorry, the guitar's out of tune. Sorry that you, you missed, the vocalist missed that note. But, but they, they, but it had that quote unquote feeling. And again, I, you know, and I tied that back into, you know, the, some of the, 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 the farm subsidies that um, I'm blanking on the name, like these, like the, the James Ag photographs that like, like, Oh, the mournful look. And so it just had this feeling was really important. And so again, and then people like Wexer picked up on that and they said, Oh yeah, there, there's more soul in the South because, because, because these are untrained musicians. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, there are recordings in Muscle Shoals sound different than the stuff in, stuff in, in Memphis and then stuff in, in Motown, basically the, the holy trinity of, of, of R&B and soul music. So, as I said, you know, in Muscle Shoals, there were probably 13 to 15 musicians on each recording, which is a lot. Memphis was a little bit less. They didn't have, they often didn't have a backing, they often didn't have like a backing vocalists. They might have one or two people, but the Shoals had a lot of like choruses and um and in, and in, and then contrast that in Motown in Motown there'd be an oboe or you know a bassoon on a recording and that never happened in in either Muscle Shoals or Memphis. And can you talk a little bit too about kind of the racialized aspect of this? Like you kind of use Nina's idea of sonic blackness and Jennifer's idea of the sonic colorine to kind of complicate the fact that these coded black musics also were underpinned with these white musicians. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that, that people might be surprised by? So as, as their, as their work has demonstrated the, the history of this racialization of sound goes back long before Muscle Shoals, right? It goes, goes back to, I mean, you know, Bredano's work, you know, this, it's happened the moment, the moment the first African slaves stepped on this, stepped on this continent. And, um, and so there has been a, a long history of, Oh, the singer is black. Therefore, the music must be black, and the and that's fiction. And the um, not that the singers weren't black because they were, but what's fiction is that the audiences don't realize that they only most audiences only focus on the star singer, and it, it still happens to this day. Um, you know, you know, my students are still in that, they still can't believe that you know Ed Sheeran writes K-pop songs. They they, they see they see a group like they see a K-pop group, and they they assume everybody. 
everybody in, in the production is 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 from South Korea. Like that's not true. I'm, I've, I've I've one of my former students actually has a number one K-pop song in, in, you know in South Korea, and he's from New Jersey. So um and so so it's it's still going on to this day. Um so you know these 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 musicians so the musicians both in Memphis and particularly obviously Muscle Shoals, they grew up listening to people like Chuck Berry and James Brown, Bobby Blue Bland, Ray Charles, and they love that music. And Norbert Putnam said to me, we love this music. We hear this, like, this is what we want to do. It, it is part of this generation who was very much rebellious. And they go on, they go to, they play that. And then they have this ability to, to mimic sonic blackness. Um, and then, then, then you, then you attach a singer like Wilson Pickett, or then, of course, Aretha Franklin, and then the music is received as black. And 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 so, you know, I, I, one of the when I started looking at some of the archival sources, you know, there was, you know, in in sources that um that were that were targeted towards black audiences. So Jet Ebony, they 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 tell the story that it's the it's the with it it's it's the with it with itness right and then in in articles like in in time and others like it's the otherness of blackness uh, music and so and 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 so the 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 this the, the, the um the the back musicians kind of get erased in some ways and so people like oh my and you know as as the introduction talked about people show up there rod stewart that's how i open the book he shows up he's like i want to work with the black musicians like there are none there there's those white guys over there and he was like he was bummed and and they, and david told me the session didn't go that well because rod was hoping he had this fantasy of working with black musicians and they just weren't any or there were very few yeah and there's another layer too um with that mystique right like with sort of the myth making of like indigenous folklore, right? And Muscle Shoals, and that kind of gets erased. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that as well? The singer yeah. river myth? Yeah, so the, um, when I, so when I, when I, as I did more digging into the singing river myth, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, that, that sort of, that, that allowed, that sort of provided me with a through line to the whole book. And, and that, that helped me tie, that, that helped me sort of conclude the whole story um, as now the singing river myth has become a big part of the way the region has branded itself. Um, and again, you know, I, when I was down in Muscle Shoals a couple of years ago doing, doing research, you know, I, I spent weeks looking into, the, looking into this history of, of the singing river myth. And, and, you know, it's basically, it shows up in roughly, you know, it's discovered in, or it's discovered, so to speak. Um, I'm using air quotes. I know I'm on the radio. I can't, I'm using air quotes. No one can see that. So, um, <laughs> um, so you know, it's 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 first it's first written down, you know, in the 1800s, and then it reappears right around the time that what becomes the Wilson Dam as 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 a way to tell the story to encourage people, and then it just sits dormant for a long time, and then um, and then the you know the the even in the even in the 80s when when the some one of the local papers starts to talk about the history of the of the, the music scene in the Muscle Shoals, they don't even mention the Singing River. It's only later on. And yeah, the Native American, the Native American culture um, of the Shoals in regards to the music scene is totally erased. Um, and you know, although they, they the, the the Shoals itself, which is a region, both a city and a region, they um, very much celebrate uh, the the Native American culture that that heritage that, that's there. But it's in regards to the music, it's it is. Um, it's kind of left out, you know, in, in, in the movie, they, they, they very much other it, you know, they, they, they show Tom's wall and they play the travel music, the drum, you know, very, all these very typical Hollywood tropes, you know, and the, 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 and the, the camera pans along this wall really fast. And like in this sort of like warlike, some, and the more air quotes, you know, warlike scene, 
and um and then they just they just they they tie it all to the, it must be in the water because there's because you know it, it's it's an easy and it's a lazy lazy way to describe the as opposed to saying there were some really talented people down there they say oh, it must be the water because why didn't it happen somewhere else it's like well maybe because there was just a lot of talented people there it's not, it's not the water so yeah and it even reaches the statewide discourse like at the bicentennial festival they were totally recording and promoting that myth even in montgomery so. right yeah yeah you know and you know and, and you know um and you know you know i'm friends carolyn crawford who was a friend of mine who was the director of the the, the heritage area you know I, not long after I, I i talked i met her a couple years ago she emailed me she's like oh she's like there's now a singing river trail like 50 miles away in huntsville it has nothing to do with this so it, it is so like it is this very wide embrace of this, I mean, obviously the, the river runs by by Huntsville, but but it's it, but it is it has become this it has ballooned into this big thing, you know. And again, I, I you know I, I interviewed Judy Sizemore in 2011. She was the first director of, of the heritage area, and you know she said to me point blank, and it's quoted in the book. She's like, "Oh, that myth, it's a great marketing tool," and I mean, and that's exactly what it's become. Yeah, it's really fascinating, and you know, you kind of talk about this a little bit in the book too about how the areas has sort of pride itself on all these different types of exceptionalism, like in terms of we've had like better race relations than like the rest of the state and that kind of thing. And so there's all these different layers that build up to this mystique that you're talking about Um, and kind of getting more into the tourism side of all that, right? Like you started getting at this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about how there was, you know, for a while, a little bit of a struggle to get that tourism economy. Like what were some of the ups and downs and highs and lows, if you will, of kind of getting shoals to be more well-known, I guess. Yeah. So um, I get, you know, that, that chapter I loved writing that chapter. It was, it was the last, last, what's now the last chapter. And I was working at the Alabama music hall of fame and I found a box. They have a loft and there was a box. It just said, it said, MSMA stuff, which is Muscle Shoals Music Association, and it was a, a a cardboard box just full of like paperwork, unfiled. And I was like, "Oh, this is a gold mine." I go through it, and so I started telling the history of the Muscle Shoals Music Association, which is which was a very big, important force for a long time, and they're coming back as well. And um, and then, you know, and you know, tied to this exceptionalism concept is, you know, these this organization the muscle Shoals music association they have this music conference that seems to, as far as i can tell is the first of its kind and it's again that history is just completely gone no one seems to know about that we had these six these six multi-day conference six for six years a multi-day conference and it predates south by southwest i mean it minimum which is the biggest in the world like that's from the 60s but it's, it wasn't the same scale but it, the first in this u.s and so what happened as as the music industry begins to shift and record, and so recording scenes like the Shoals, much like L.A. or New York, even or even Nashville, the self-contained bands are not hiring session musicians. So the recording industry, the recording, the recording industry seems to decline a little bit. What happens is, you know, the the Swampers themselves they sell their studio. Um, uh, Barry Beckett moves to Nashville, and so there's just less recording going on in the Shoals, and that also coincides with kind of an economic downturn in the in, in in the US in general in the 80s. And so they don't know what to do. And the Shoals itself has to figure out, well, we we've lost these we've lost some big industry, you know, the things like uh the the TVA is kind of sort of on, on a downcline a, a, a decline. A downcline like a, is that a word it is now. So and um and so they decide that the Shoals decides 
we're going to invest into our own cultural history. And the first thing they have is they have the river for fishing, which is this beautiful river. They have massive, you know, bass tournaments and they have Helen Keller. And so that's what they invest in. And so the, the tourism people I interviewed said that was their focus because, and they're like, oh yeah, by the way, there's a studio over there. And that's where the stones recording people are like, oh my God, but the studios were private and they had always been private. And because it's a private industry, and, you know, and at that point, Muscle, Muscle Shoal Sound was more or less out of business. All the Malika was there. They weren't necessarily, they weren't, there were no tours. And, you know, you have to be, you have to be a music officiate and not to know, know about these things. And then they decide that, oh, maybe the music is a big part of our heritage and we could do this as a selling point. And so it takes a very, very long time. And it's only recently, it's in the past 10 years or so that they've really embraced this. And the, the movie was like the wake up call for me. People like, oh, wow, that was happening here. And yeah, it's, oh my God, it's 55 years old. Like, yeah. And, um, you know, it, and it's funny when, when I, when I first went down to the Shoals in 2011, I, I, you know, I, I, I'd meet some random people and I'm like, I'm like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm doing some research on the music industry. Like, oh, what's that? I was like, oh, you know. Well, I don't know. How, do you know this? Oh, yeah, I've heard of them. And then when I go, when I went back in 2019, I went back several times. When I went the last time in 2019, people, everyone was, oh yeah, I knew all about this. Like, I doubt that. I doubt you knew anything about this because you know, you know, because because everyone, you know, as Judy Hood said to me, is like everyone they want to own it to a fault because now it's like, oh, we this was us. We knew all about this when in fact nobody did. And so and so it's and that that is tied with the Singing River stuff. There's a Singing River Bridge. There's Tom's Wall, which is a beautiful monument. Um, and they start trying to figure this out, and 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 then and 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 then then the Florence Lauderdale Tourism uh, Center they they build a new center, and they start using music as one of their cultural pillars, and and sort of the, some of this is tied to to the fact that the Muscle Shoals National Heritage Area um, one of the pillars is it's you know is is music, and so they they decide to use that, and and that become and so there's now federal dollars coming in to support this, and they and and then people have to figure out. Okay, how are we going to sell this? How are we going to attract people to to this to these places? Yeah, I'm curious. More recently, um, have you seen how this area has responded to like the pandemic and stuff with that economy? Like, have they tried to do any virtual stuff? You know, what's been going on with recently? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I do follow a lot of these places on social media, and you know, it was Alabama, and they didn't completely shut down. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, yes, obviously things were closed for some months, but as far as I tell, they opened right back up again, you know, pretty quickly and we're giving tours. Um, I don't know the numbers. Um, you know, I mean, you know, when, when I was last there in the summer of 2019, um, you know, they had, they had done, they were like muscle show sound was doing like 3000 people a month. And of course, obviously the numbers would, would go down. I don't know what the numbers are now, but yeah, they, they weren't necessarily doing virtual stuff. Um, but they, as far as I tell, they never, they, I mean, other than maybe the first four or five months, they didn't stop. They never stopped. Um, you know, you know, and also, and, you know, one of the things too, is that, you know, the, both, both Muscle Soul Sound and Fame and Fame or Fame in particular, it's a working studio. So Chris Stapleton recorded some of his most recent record at, um, at, at Sound and, and you, you, anybody can actually record there. You just, you have to give them enough notice and you have to pay their fees. So I, I would suspect that they probably did some recording when when during the pandemic because all right you know as long as, as, long as you don't have you don't need to have tourists coming through you know they, as long as everyone's distance enough so um, so I, I, I'm not exactly sure how they handled the pandemic but as far as I can tell they're up there they're back up and running you know you know fame is giving tours um, you know sound gives tours 
Um, you know, it's and it's relatively inexpensive. I mean, they're not they're not. I mean, they're not very big places. I mean, Muscle Soul Sound is actually surprisingly small. So I think you know, it is like I'm looking at my house. It's like it's not it's not much bigger than the ground floor of my house. And the same with Fame, but, but there's a lot of history there. Fascinating. And speaking of that history, you know, you kind of started talking about earlier about one thing that might strike people with the book is the role of country in the area, right? Um, can you kind of get and you know, you, this book brings so many of these key players, you know, to this front center. Can you talk a little bit about some of the different like genres that each generation of studio musicians recorded, you know, leading up to kind of the more recent things that we're talking about? Like how did the one generation of studio musicians shape the next, I guess? So it's, 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 it's an interesting question. You know, the Shoals becomes an R&B scene by happenstance. Arthur Alexander records you better move on, and it becomes a regional hit and a, and, and, and a national. It become it gets to number twenty four in Billboard. Had it been a white country musician, it would have been a country scene, and so that paves the way for about ten years, where they, the Rick Hall, his session musicians, all work in the R and B industry. But musicians are studio musicians have the ability to just play whatever as jimmy johnson said he that we call ourselves chameleons we could you come in you want a country song we could do that as the as the national country as the national music scene pivots away from r&b into country and pop music that's where they go and um and you know for a for a very much for a long portion of that history you know especially the most social sound guys it's the same four guys who are recording, they started recording Wilson Pickett in the mid sixties. And then, you know, 10 years later, they're working, they're working with, with um, the Oak Ridge boys. And so in like, which, which most people would see as night and day, but the musicians like, it's just a different, it's a different day. It's, it's, there's only 12 notes to choose from. It's just a slightly different, I'm going to, I'm going to adjust the, 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 the timbre of my guitar. And so they have the, the, the music scene, any music scene needs to be able to pivot because pop music uh, shifts so fast if you're only doing one thing then at some point the, the mainstream music is going to move going to going to go by you and the the move to country music started primarily at, at music mill where this one uh the one studio owner was like all right there's no there's no there's really very few studios in this in the area doing country music i'm going to bring in some country music i'm going to bring some country country artists and i'm going to put some soulful pop musicians behind them and let's see what happens and it explodes and and you know, and primarily, it's you know what what sustains the shoals through that that country period in, in the late seventies into the eighties. It's not the recording industry; it's actually the songwriters. And you know, Rodney Hall, you know, said to me, um, you know, in, in an email, he's like, "I'm really glad you talked about publishing because you know the studio rental. You come in and the studio, they, you know, you can rent the studio maybe it's a thousand bucks a day, and that's great. But like, you get a hit song." And they're making money for the rest of their lives. I mean, you look at the John Michael Montgomery song, the, you know, "I Swear," which is a, which was both a number one hit at R and B and pop and country at the same time. Twenty million copies of that song. I mean, that's that's still paying the rent. At, at, at so, um, from one song, and and they have dozens of songs, not to that same level, but they have lots of them. So, so, so the country music, so country music, um, you know, people like Walt Aldridge and others, um, Robert Byrne, they start writing these hits for these various groups, and that 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 paves the way for the for fame for probably a decade and even longer even in, even into the even into the year 2000 you know um uh 
every time he cheats, uh, the Carrie Underwood song. I mean, that was co-written by by Muscle Shoals, by a fame by a fame co-writer, by a fame songwriter. So you know, um, Brad Chisler, there's all these guys are still working in the Shoals that that still have that still attached to the public to the, to Nashville. And again, because country isn't cool, so that that story is left out of the out of out of the out of the out of the documentary. And um, and also I think primarily because a lot of the, the session musicians weren't involved in those recordings. So it just, it wasn't as sexy to talk about that, but it's, it's all there, you know, and, and, you know, Barry Beckett, you know, goes to Nashville and becomes the number one producer for several years, you know, you know, he, you know, he, he, he helps discover and Kenny Chesney is, you know, basically, you know, comes out of his, his, you know, Barry Beckett didn't discover Kenny Chesney, but he, but Chesney worked with Beckett for his first three or four records. Yeah. And so you were talking about how, you know, you have all these different people that you've brought to the forefront here. And I was curious in your research process, was there anything else that surprised you? Cause it sounds like you went digging several different places. Like, <laughs> you know, were there any like, Holy crap, this is, I did not expect this. Like what were some of the gems of your research, I guess? Well, you know, I, I you know, um, you know, some of the gems, again, you know, when I, when I, the, did the stuff about the Muscle Shoals Music Association when I, you know, when I looked into their, to their, their conference, you know, their, their fish fries that they call them and, you know, and realized that this was going on. And then, and, and then when I, when I, when I was digging into, when I started working on the, the country music chapter, which I wrote very quickly, um, only took about five weeks to write that chapter. Uh, I, I would, I would do my, sit here, do my research and I would come home. I, I, I was home and I'd come to dinner to, to my wife and be like, I can't believe that Walt Rogers wrote this song as well. It was just, it was staggering. Like I knew that song. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've, you know, my, my advisor at Chapel Hill, Jocelyn Neal, you know, is like one of the, uh, you know, country music scholar. And, uh, you know, it's just like, Oh my God, that song too. And I, I know that song and I, you know, and it was, and it, it was just stupefying how much music that passed through the shoals in some way or, or somewhere or another. That is again, you know, again, people don't necessarily be the credits. So, um, so that was, that was one of the things that was just like, wow. I, you know, even I was, you know, someone who was about as well versed in this as anybody else on the, on the planet. I was like, holy cow, I can't believe that song as well. And, and, and also, you know, you know, one of the things too that, you know, I, I need to, I need to credit a friend of mine in the show is um, this guy, Tony Lee had said to me, you know, he was like, you should look into, um, you know, the, the 50 stuff. Cause it's not all, it's not all, it's not all recalled. And I knew that. And, you know, and, you know, one of the things that, that I laid out in the beginning of the book is like, there was a pretty significant base there to begin with that, that allowed recall to step, step higher. You know, again, it's kind of like the standing on the shoulders of giants, not that these guys were giants in the fifties, but, um, but recall didn't just come in and, and invent this thing from scratch. He, he was able to capitalize. And again, he deserves significant credit. Um, you know, he built, he, he built it to a high level and sustained it, but they were, you know, but that story too, I was very happy to tell that story because it was because again, because that story is just left. No one seems to know that story. And again, it, it was all there. It was all, it was all in the, in the, in the folders at the various archives. It just no one bothered to tell it. Yeah. And I know I've been kind of guiding the conversation here for quite a while. So I wanted to open it up to you. Is there anything else about this research and about this book that you want to share with our listeners that we haven't already touched on? Well, you know, I guess the only thing, I mean, you know, we've talked, we've talked, we've touched on a lot of it and I appreciate that the opportunity, um, you know, I'm going to be very clear, like this is one way to tell the story, you know? So it is, I, it, um, you know, I know I'm sure there's going to be some people who are going to be upset by what I say and some people are going to be surprised and people are going to be mad they were left out or how come that person got more ink than they did. Um, and, but it's history, right? If this is just, there's only so much space I can tell. There's only so much space I have 
Um, and you know, but, but I, I, you know, when I shared some of the book with with uh, Rodney Hall, Rick's son, and he went back, he's like, "Wow, there's a bunch of stuff I didn't even know about." It's like, of course, why would you have known? Like, you know, you're not, like you're not a historian. Why, like, you you you're the one living this. Why would you have known? Like, this it makes perfect sense. You would not know that not know this. You know, um, so um, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think I have anything else I, I, I want uh, that I need to add. Because I, I mean, it's it's just like this. Probably, I probably have enough research for another book too. Although, although that's not happening, because um, <laughs> it's like, yeah. But cool. And speaking of other uh, books, what other projects are you working now in, in general? Um, well, it, uh, besides my my gig as a teacher, I, I'm also I, I'm a musician. I play. I'm a songwriter. I play. I usually I play a gig about once a month where, where I live in in the Hudson Valley. And I'm going to start doing some work with a friend of mine in Australia. Um, we're going to start doing some more music industry, st- industry related stuff. Going to do some stuff about touring. Um, maybe some, I'll start off with, we're actually meeting, uh, in a couple nights to, to sort of hash out a ideas for, for an article and, and which will probably maybe, who knows, maybe it could be become a book because there's not much, there's not many sources on, on, on touring and I have a significant background on touring and as a she. So that's kind of, I mean, basically I've been taking the summer off. So, you know, it, it's, you know, it took me 10 years to work. Well, depending on when you start when depending on when i started this thing it's like it was either 2009 you know or when i was 13 so you know um it's been a long time it's been a long time finishing this thing oh i mean the book has been done for over obviously well over a year it just takes time for the for the for the press to get stuff to, to get stuff together so i'm just kind of chilling at the moment as far as research i'm just, i'm thinking how about that i like it i like it <laughs> sounds like a great plan and i'll look forward to uh you know, reading more about your touring stuff eventually. And it was a pleasure to read the book and the talk with you about it. So thank you for joining us today. Yeah, Emily, thank you. So I, I very much appreciate the, appreciate the opportunity to, to be on the, on the program. Thank you so much. No problem. And listeners giving you a quick recap. This was a talk with Christopher Reale, author of music and mystique in Muscle Shoals published by Illinois press in 2022. This is Emily on, and I'll catch you next time here on the new books network.